morning. I have to do my little disclaimer. Nothing here is original with me. <laughs> there are greater minds that have gone through this. I just copy what they said. The famous preacher D.L. Moody told about a Christian woman who was always bright, cheerful, and optimistic, even though she was confined to her room because of illness. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old, run-down building. A friend decided to visit her one day and brought along another woman, a person of great wealth. Since there was no elevator, the two ladies began the long climb upward. When they reached the second floor, the well-to-do woman commented, What a dark and filthy place. Her friend replied, It's better higher up. When they arrived at the third landing, the remark was made, Things look even worse here. Again the reply, It's better higher up. The two women finally reached the attic level, where they found a bedridden saint of God. A smile on her face radiated the joy that filled her heart. Although the room was clean and flowers were on the windowsill, the wealthy visitor could not get over the stark surroundings. She blurted out, It must be very difficult for you to be here like this. Without a moment's hesitation, the shut-in replied, It's better higher up. It should be that way for us too. This isn't our home. As Christians, we live in the light and hope of glory. That hope is summed up best by John in his first epistle. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see just as for we shall see him just as he is. 1 John 3:2. Man was created in the image of God and was made with a glorious nature. Before the fall, he was without sin, and he radiated the glory of his creator. But when Adam fell, man lost not only his sinlessness, but also his glory. It is for this reason that all men now fall short of the glory of God, as we saw in Romans 3. Fallen men seem to know they are devoid of glory, and they often strive to gain glory for themselves. The contemporary obsession with achieving self-esteem is a tragic example of the futile effort to regain glory apart from God's holiness. The ultimate purpose of salvation is to forgive, cleanse, and restore God's glory to man. Glorification marks the completion of salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones asserts that salvation cannot stop at any point short of entire perfection, or it is not salvation. As Paul told the, the Philippian believers, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. That is why Paul can declare, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8.18. The Greek word Paul uses for consider refers to numerical calculation. It, it describes reaching a settled conclusion by careful study and reasoning. Paul doesn't merely suggest, but strongly affirms that any suffering for Christ's sake is a small price to pay for the benefits received because of that suffering. 
Jesus is the perfect example of suffering for righteousness sake. Suffering was essential in Christ's obedience to the Father, and it is essential in our obedience to Christ. As followers of Christ, our suffering comes from men, but our glory comes from God. We suffer here on earth, but glory awaits us in heaven. Our suffering is short and trivial, whereas our glory is forever and limitless. Our suffering is in our mortal and corrupted bodies. Our glory will be in our perfected and imperishable bodies. Sin has caused all creation to fall from the perfect state in which God created it. The world is in bondage to death and decay so that it cannot fulfill its intended purpose. Verses 19 to 22. The, world, the word Paul uses in these verses for eager expectation literally um, refers to watching with outstretched head and suggests standing on tiptoes with the eyes looking ahead expectantly. The creation is standing on tiptoes as it waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. During this time, the world is not able to distinguish absolutely between Christians and unbelievers. There are unbelievers who have high moral standards of behavior and professing Christians, unfortunately, who give little evidence of salvation. At the appointed time, God will reveal those who are truly his. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4. When Adam and Eve sinned, the world was cursed and corrupted. Before the fall, nothing existed that could cause man misery or harm. But after the fall, the creation was subjected to God's curse. Because of man's sin, no part of nature now exists as God intended it to be and as it originally was. Environmentalists attempt to restore natural resources, but they are helpless to turn the tide of corruption. They are in serious error when they assert that only man is ruining an otherwise perfect environment. The destructiveness of sin has brought corruption to the entire universe. Decay, disease, pain, death, natural disaster, pollution, and all other forms of evil will never cease until the one who sent the curse removes it and creates a new heaven and a new earth. When man's glory is divinely restored, the natural world will be restored as well. Isaiah predicted, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The destiny of the earth is entirely in the hands of its creator, and that destiny includes God's total destruction of the sin-cursed universe. It is for that promised time of redemption and restoration that all nature groans in hope and expectation. Just as God subjected the world to his curse, so he will set it free from death and decay. Nature will not restore itself, but will be restored by the same God who subjected it to corruption. A time is coming when all believers will be liberated from sin. At that time, we will begin to share eternally in God's own glory. Look, I can't begin to wrap my puny little brain around such a divine mystery, but by the Holy Spirit, I can believe and rejoice with confident hope that my eternal life is secure in heaven. Nature also awaits this redemption that it will share with us, and in anticipation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Like Eve, whose sin brought the curse of painful human childbirth, nature endures its own kind of labor pains. And also like even her descendants, nature's pains indicate new life. Verses 23 through 25. Every true believer agonizes at times over the evidence and consequence of sin. Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually sensitized to the corruption of sin in and around us. The Spirit's indwelling work in us and through us is a type of spiritual first, first fruits. When the Holy Spirit empowers us to turn from sin and to truly worship, serve, obey, and love God, we have a taste of the renewal He will work in us at the resurrection. Because the Lord has given us an awareness of sin, we groan within ourselves over the curse of sin that is still demonstrated by our humanness. Therefore, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The New Testament speaks of believers as those who are adopted children of God, but our adoption awaits ultimate perfection. Just as there is never salvation that is not completed, Neither is there divine adoption that is never completed. Scripture teaches that the believer's salvation is secured by God the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Now it is God who makes, us, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 John MacArthur explains that Christians are holy seeds encased in an unholy shell. We are in a prison of flesh and eagerly await an event that is divinely guaranteed but is yet to happen, the redemption of our body. Paul assures us that if we have been united with him like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his, res in his resurrection, Romans 6, 5. Although our redeemed bodies will in some way be like Christ, we will not know exactly what they will be like until we meet our Savior face to face. Paul continues to explain that in this hope we were saved. Hope is inseparable from salvation. Our salvation was planned by God before the creation of the world, given to us in the present, and is characterized by hope for its future completion. This hope is based on the integrity of the clear promises of the Lord. Everyone who is saved by Jesus Christ will forever belong to him. It is quite possible for a sinful Christian to struggle with the assurance of salvation and with the joy and comfort which that salvation brings, but it is not possible for him to lose salvation itself. The completion of our salvation is presently a hope and not yet a reality. Paul explains the obvious truth that hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? In other words, in this life, we cannot expect to experience the reality of our glorification, but only the hope of it. Because our hope is based on God's promise, the completion of our salvation is more certain than anything we can see with our eyes. Because salvation is completely God's work, and because he cannot lie, it is absolutely impossible for us to lose what he has given us and promises never to take away. 
verses 26 and 27. Paul reveals the comforting truth that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and all creation in groaning for God's ultimate day of restoration and his eternal reign of righteousness. Acting morally, speaking the truth, witnessing for the Lord, or doing any other good thing happens only by the power of the Spirit working in and through us despite our human limitations. Although we are redeemed and absolutely secure in our adoption, nevertheless, we do not know how to pray as we should. We are not able to pray in absolute consistency with God's will. Many times we are not even aware that spiritual needs exist, much less know how best they should be met. Even the Christian who prays sincerely and faithfully and regularly cannot possibly know God's purposes concerning all of his own needs or the needs of others. When we do not know what God wants, the indwelling spirit himself intercedes for us, bringing our needs before God. Paul emphasizes that our help is from the Spirit himself. His divine help is personal and direct. The Spirit does not simply provide our security, but is himself our security. He intercedes on our behalf in a way that is totally beyond human comprehension, with groans that words cannot express. These groanings are not utterances in unknown tongues or babbling that has no rational content. These groans are not even audible and are inexpressible in words. They represent communication by the Holy Spirit directly to God the Father. Satan knows that believers would be helpless apart from the sustaining work of the Son and the Spirit. And in his arrogant pride, he wars against those two divine persons of the Godhead. He knows that if somehow he could interrupt that divine protection, believers would fall from grace and again belong to him. But the never-ending work of Christ and the Holy Spirit make that impossible. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. If the Father knows the hearts of men, how much more does he know the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit's will and the Father's will are identical. We are sure that the Spirit's intercession on our behalf is according to God's perfect will. And we know that all things, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. This precious promise encompasses absolutely everything that pertains to our lives as believers. As believers in Christ, we know beyond any doubt that every aspect of our lives is in God's hands and will be divinely used by the Lord to manifest his glory and to work out, work out our ultimate blessing. God himself brings about the good that comes to his people. There are no limits, no restrictions or conditions. You don't need to get out a magnifying glass, ladies, because there, are, there is no fine print and there are no exclusions. Paul is not saying that God prevents us from experiencing things that can harm us but that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his children and turns those things eventually into blessings. Nothing can ultimately work against us. 
any temporary harm we suffer will be used by God for our benefit. The phrase to work together comes from the same word in Greek as the English term synergy and implies a cooperation that produces an effect greater than the total of each member acting separately. No matter what happens in our lives, the providence of God uses it for our earthly as well as our eternal benefit. Sometimes by saving us from tragedies and sometimes by sending us through them in order to draw us closer to himself. His holy attributes, his power, wisdom, goodness, faithfulness, all work for our good, as does his word. In addition to his attributes, God's holy angels work for the good of those who belong to him, and his children them themselves are ministers of his good to each other. Although it is often difficult to recognize and accept the Lord, accept, the Lord causes even evil things to work for our good. He uses the evil of suffering as a as a means of bringing good to his people. Sometimes the suffering is as a result of our faith. Other times it is simply the common pain, hardship, disease, and conflicts that are the lot of all mankind. It can also come by God's permission, and not always as discipline. Consider righteous Job or Joseph, a classic example of God's using unjust suffering to bring great good not only to the sufferer, but to all of his family who constituted God's chosen people. Suffering also comes as divine discipline for sin. God chastens certain members of the Corinthian church because of their flagrant and unrepentant sins, causing some to become sick and others to die. We aren't told what good God brought to those sinful believers themselves. Perhaps it was simply his way of preventing them from falling into greater sin. It lightly worked good for the rest of the Corinthian church, as God had done in the instance of Ananias and Sapphira, whose severe, whose severe discipline was a purifying force in the early church. Through suffering we learn kindness, sympathy, humility, compassion, patience, and, and gentleness. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10 Suffering can also teach us to hate sin, as we see its destruction of others. Jesus groaned in agony at Lazarus' tomb, not because Lazarus was dead, he was going to raise Lazarus in a few minutes. But because of the grief that sin and its great consequence, death, brought to the loved ones of Lazarus. Sometimes it is only when we are mistreated, unfairly accused, or debilitated by illness, financial disaster, or some other form of hardship that we come face to face with our temper, our self-satisfaction, or our indifference to other people or to God. Suffering is used by God to drive out our sin and purify us. The supreme illustration of God's turning all things to the good of his children is seen in the sacrificial death of his own son. In the crucifixion of Jesus, God took the most absolute evil that Satan could devise 
and turned it into the greatest conceivable blessing he could offer to fallen mankind, eternal salvation from sin. The only qualification in the promise of this verse has to do with the recipients. It is only for God's children, those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. First, the true believer is characterized by his genuine love for God. Redeemed people love the gracious God who has saved them. Because of their depraved and sinful natures, the unredeemed hate God. It is not by accident that Paul lists love as the first fruit of the Spirit. Second, Paul describes the recipients of eternal security as those who are called. Just as our love originates with God, so does our calling into his heavenly family. In their fallen sinful state, men are able only to hate God, because regardless of what they may think, they are enemies and children of his wrath. When Jesus said that many are called, but few are chosen. He was referring to the gospel's external call to all men to believe in him. It is obvious that many people who receive this call do not accept it. But in the epistles, the terms called and calling refer, refer to the sovereign, regenerating work of God in a believer's heart that brings him to new life in Christ. In this sense, all those who are called are chosen and redeemed by God and are ultimately glorified. They are securely predestined by God to be his children and to be conformed to the image of his Son. At the end of verse 28, Paul states the source of the believer's security in Christ, God's divine purpose. God's purpose in his divine plan to save those whom he called God's purpose is his divine plan to save those whom he called, sorry. The emphasis is on God's sovereign plan of redemption, which he ordained before the foundation of the earth. The Jewish people were not chosen because of who they were, but because of who God is. The same is true of God's choosing believers. He chooses solely on the basis of his divine will and purpose. Verses 29 and 30. God's calling proceeds and makes possible a person's hearing and responding in faith to God's divine call. From before time began, God chose to save believers from their sins in order that they might become conformed to the image of his Son. First, we will be like Christ bodily. All humans share a common kind of physical body, but each person has his own distinctive looks and personality. In the same way, the redeemed in heaven will share a common kind of spiritual body, but will be individually distinguished from one another. Scripture is clear that in eternity, both the saved and the damned will retain their individuality. The final resurrection will be of all, hum of all human beings of all times, a resurrection of life for the righteous and one of death for the wicked. Second, we will be like Christ spiritually. Our incorruptible bodies will be infused with the very holiness of Christ 
and we will be both outwardly and inwardly perfect. God's supreme purpose for bringing sinners to salvation is to glorify his Son. It is God's intent for Christ to be the firstborn among many brothers. Our ultimate purpose as the redeemed children of God will be to spend eternity, eternity worshiping and giving praise to God's beloved firstborn. In delineating the progress of God's plan of redemption, Paul states what may be called the, its five major elements, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. These five links in the chain of God's saving work are unbreakable. It is also significant to note the tense used by Paul to state each element of God's saving work. Security in Christ is so absolute that even the salvation of believers not yet born can be expressed in the past tense as if it had already occurred. Redemption began with God's foreknowledge. Salvation is not initiated by a person's decision to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Scripture is clear that repentant faith is essential to salvation and is the first step that we take in response to God. But repentant faith does not initiate salvation. In his omniscience, God is certainly able to look to the end of history and beyond and to know in advance all that is going to happen. But it is both unbiblical and illogical to argue from that truth that the Lord simply looked ahead to see who would believe and then chose those individuals for salvation. If that were true, salvation would begin with man's faith and God would be obligated to grant it. In such a scenario, God's initiative would be eliminated and his grace would be canceled. The full truth about God's omniscience cannot be comprehended. We cannot discern such mysteries. We can only believe what the Bible clearly says, that God does indeed foresee the faith of every person who is saved. We also believe God's revelation that although men cannot be saved apart from the faithful action of their wills, saving faith, just as every other part of salvation originates with and is empowered by God alone. God not only sees faith in advance, but ordains it in advance. From foreknowledge, God's plan of redemption moves to his predestination. The Greek word for predestined means to mark out, to appoint, or to determine beforehand. Just as Jesus was crucified by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23, so God also predestined every believer to salvation through the means of that atoning sacrifice. Much of contemporary evangelism gives the impression that salvation is predicated on a person's decision for Christ. But we are not Christians, first of all, because of what we decided about Christ, but because of what God decided about us before the foundation of the world. We were able to choose him only because he had first chosen us according to the kind intention of his will. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. In God's divine plan of redemption, predestination leads to calling. Those who are called are those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit works to lead them to saving faith in Christ. The Lord's sovereign calling gives still further confirmation 
that we are eternally secure in Christ. We were saved because God called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Timothy 1.9 From beginning to end, our salvation is God's work, not our own. It should be strongly emphasized that scripture nowhere teaches that God chooses unbelievers for condemnation. In the divine scheme of things, which far surpasses our understanding, God predestines believers to eternal life, but scripture does not say that he predestines unbelievers to eternal damnation. If a person goes to hell, it is because he rejects God and his way of salvation. Unbelievers are condemned by their own unbelief, not by God's predestination. The next element in God's saving work is justification of those who believe. After they are called, they are also justified by him. Justified refers to a believer's being made right with God by God. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, men can only be justified as a gift by God's grace through the, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 As with foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and justification, glorification is inseparable from the other elements and is exclusively a work of God. As believers, we know with absolute certainty that awaiting us is an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that our ultimate glorification is the very purpose for which we are redeemed. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Verses 31-39 Paul closes this magnificent chapter with what John MacArthur calls the hymn of security a declaration of thanksgiving for God's grace. Paul's focus in, this, in these closing verses is on the security that Christ's substitutionary atonement brings to those who believe in him. Paul begins with a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? A better translation would be, because God is for us, who can be against us? If anyone were able to rob us of salvation, they would have to be greater than God himself because he is both the giver and sustainer of salvation. King David declared with unreserved confidence, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27.1 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? How could it possibly be that God would sacrifice his own son for the sake of those who believe in him and then cast some of those blood-bought believers out of his family and his kingdom? Would God do less for believers after they are saved than he did for them prior to salvation? If God loved us so much while we were wretched sinners that he gave up his own son for us, would he turn his back on us after we have been cleansed from sin and made righteous in his sight? Jesus promises, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord makes no allowance for any of his people to be lost again, but promises each one of them an eternal home in his presence. Jesus also assures us that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. What power in heaven or earth could rob the Godhead of those who have been divinely saved for eternity? The world and Satan are continually bringing charges against God's elect, but those charges amount to nothing because the Lord is the one who justifies, the one who decides who is righteous before him. We have been declared eternally guiltless and are no longer, longer under the condemnation of God. Romans 8.1 Through the sacrifice of his Son, all the demands of the law have been met for those who trust in him. Even when a charge brought against us is true, it has been covered by the blood of Christ, and we are now clothed in his righteousness. Christ Jesus, who died, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Jesus makes continuous intercession for all believers. He could not grant eternal life and then take it away, because that would demonstrate that the life he had granted was not eternal. It would mean that he was working against himself and negating his own promise. Christ's death paid the price for our sins, and his resurrection gave absolute proof that the price was paid. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the place of honor, signifying that his work is finished. Even though his work of atonement is complete, his ministry of intercession for us will continue without interruption until every redeemed soul is safe in heaven. God has a profound love for his people. In this world, believers face many threatening circumstances. Many are enduring tribulation and trouble, placed under extreme pressure and emotional stress. They are in anguish, helplessly hemmed in, continually confronted with temptations they cannot avoid and must continue to resist. Many suffer persecution. They are discriminated against so harshly that they cannot afford to buy enough food to eat or are imprisoned for their faith and are gradually starving to death because they aren't given adequate food. Many are so destitute that they cannot adequately clothe themselves or their families. They are vulnerable and unprotected. They are exposed to danger, betrayed, mistreated, and threatened with death. Yet Paul quotes from Psalm 44:22, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The cost of faithfulness to God has always been high and will continue to be high. The true believer perseveres, not because he is strong in himself, but because he has the power of God's indwelling spirit. The fact that we persevere proves our salvation. Just as we can only love God because he first loved us, we can only hold on to God because he holds on to us. In all these things, overwhelming victory is ours to, through him who loved us. In God's scheme of things, the vanquished are the victors. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful summary of all Paul has been teaching. These verses contain one of the most comforting promises in all scripture. It is impossible to be separated from Christ. There is nothing anywhere at any time that will be able to separate us from the love of God. His death for us is proof of his unconquerable love. Nothing can separate us from Christ's presence. We can feel totally secure in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear, believe, and apply your word in our lives. You have made us more than conquerors. Help us to live that way. For your glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Thank you.